Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rawls, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. Today, I'm joined by my friend G, who's a longtime distinguished member of the Navy SEALs. I've been fortunate to become good friends with G over the past year and have learned a lot from him about building high-performance teams. So thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I'm always interested in learning what makes people elite, whether it's you know creativity, leadership skills, work ethic, and talked on the podcast a lot about things focused around our business, which is, of course, dental specialties, but really trying to draw experience or ideas from, from other industries or people so that we can hopefully translate them into what we do. And I know in your work and experiences has obviously been a lot about pushing yourself to the extremes of physical performance, maniacal planning, decision-making in the most stressful situations and be most importantly teamwork. So I'd love to talk to you today about some of those concepts and see what we can learn from you and, and hopefully bring those into our own lives, if that sounds like a reasonable plan. Yeah, that sounds great. So I guess first off, so everyone can kind of get a little idea, context of your background, tell us a little bit about how you grew up. How did you go on to become a SEAL? And is that something you always knew you were you, were you born to do that? Or is this you know something that evolved over time? I'll tell you, if you had asked me probably 25 years ago, if I was going to be a Navy SEAL, I would have said no. Military really wasn't on the horizon for me. I was I was in college when September 11th happened. You know, one of those moments, I guess, where you come to this crossroads in life and you think, well, I can continue going the college route and I can finish school and do what it was that I was intending to do. Or here's this landmark moment where I really felt like I needed to serve my country patriotic responsibility, all those kind of things. And I think there was a big sense of that for those who are listening to the podcast who are old enough to remember September 11th. It was a very nationally galvanizing moment, I think, where everybody sort of felt like this sense of patriotism, the sense of like, we were just attacked on our home soil for the first time since Pearl Harbor. And for me at the time, I was 22 years old and I thought, I, I have to go serve. This is something I need to do. So in making that decision, in my mind, there was really only two routes. If I was going to serve, I either needed to serve as some form of the special forces or not at all, really. It was either tip of the spear or I would rather be doing something more productive with my time. So I talked to a handful of people, including a high school buddy who had done some time in the teams. I came to the conclusion that I felt like the SEAL teams were best suited for me. I swam in high school and stuff. So it seemed like it would have been a good fit. And that was how I came to the decision. And pretty quick flash to burn from the time I decided to join until the time I was in the Navy was about six months. So much to the surprise and chagrin, I think, of my parents, who kind of just thought that I was going to continue with school and those kind of things. And I said, no, I, I was like, this is something I need to do. And that was it. So that's 20 year career thereabouts. So yeah, coming up on 23. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Is that typical? That That sounds like a pretty long, stellar career. Do, do most people able to endure that long? I think it sort of ebbs and flows. It depends on the guy. Working in the SEAL teams has been a community that tends to lend itself to guys hanging around longer because it is a really great community to work in, right? We get to do some really cool training. You get to work with a bunch of guys who are very like-minded, who are very motivated, who are very high-achieving. 
And I think when you find an opportunity to be a part of a community that's like that and you affiliate yourself with that community, I think there's a tendency to want to stick around. So it's not uncommon to see guys do 20, 20 plus, even 30 year careers in the teams. I think the other factor that weighs on that is, is there anything going on, right? So in the 90s, he didn't have a lot of active global conflicts. He had a handful of things, Gothic Serpent and Mogadishu and some of the Noriega operation in Panama and some of these other things. But for us, when I came in post 9-11, you really had essentially almost an entire career of sustained combat, of, of action, of good working deployments. And that keeps guys actively engaged. It keeps guys interested. It keeps you motivated to keep doing the job at a high level. My generation, I guess, if you want to call it that, or sort of my cohort that came in post 9-11, most of the guys that I know stayed in for 20 or more. That's interesting. I love what you said about it's like a great community. And and obviously, I've worked with your uncle for organizational design and things. And he always talks about like within Paradigm, our organization, creating a community of practice and that really just a culture that people want to be around. And it seems to me, I mean, I, I might be biased, but it seems like we've kind of captured that in our organization. We sort of think we're an elite team of surgeons, maybe at not quite the same level of elite as what maybe you're used to, but in our own overly inflated egos, I guess we, we think we're, we think we're elite. But I think like having that community, like for Paradigm, it's been, you know, all these practices that were kind of in isolation of one another across the country. And now we kind of have a, a team, so to speak. And I think that's really been contributed to our success a lot and why people have stayed with it and, you know, recommend their friends and recruit others and things. So I guess that sounds a lot like culture, but what makes up that culture and the seals that makes people, you know, you said the, there's been a lot of activity in the past couple of decades and things, but what, like, how would you describe the culture that keeps everybody so aligned? The activity is good, right? Guys like to be actively engaged. Guys came in typically with a purpose of wanting to serve, but the culture is the key thing. And I think it's a culture that extends beyond just what people think about like the training that we do, which the training is typically very engaging. I mean, we get to scuba dive and we get to skydive and we get to shoot guns and we get to blow stuff up and practice going through the shoot house and doing this tactical maneuvers and doing land mobility and all these things that are, you know, like the 12 year old Boy Scout in me is just like, Yes, this is awesome, you know, <laughs> but the culture extends beyond that. You know, it's, I mean, I was just talking the other day to a friend of mine, he's enlisted, so he's not an officer. He's on his way out of the Navy, but he just finished his second master's degree. You know, so here's a guy who's uh, not even a super high ranking enlisted guy, but he's getting out of the Navy now with two master's degrees. He's going to go on certainly to high performing things in other organizations mm -hmm. and the drive to do above and beyond what's called of you within the teams like nobody in the teams expects you to do scholastic work or to start a business or to be entrepreneurial i know a guy who started a uh, monster garage in his spare time he's active duty navy seal and he started a an auto repair shop where he does lift kits and all these different kind of things or he fixes motorcycles and and so you have that drive to achieve and to overachieve and it's guys are constantly pushing the envelope of how good can I be and how much can I do in every facet of their life. And to me, that's very compelling, you know, whether it's academically or, you know, industrially, commercially, or guys get licensed in real estate or do just a variety of things. I mean, it could go on and on. And then it becomes a very interesting community after the fact of what guys go on to do in their post-career lives. And you just know this wealth of guys who have gone on to do some really cool businesses or to act as in movies and television shows or to write books or to one guy, he's a knife maker. He's got a company called Half Face Blades that makes really cool 
Knives, we'll shout out to him there. But yeah, so it's just really interesting to see what it was like working with those guys and to see where those guys go. And it is that culture. I think that place that a lot of guys who make it into the teams are just so driven to be excellent in all of the things that they do, that it creates that culture of if there's a guy who's lagging a little bit, you show up to work and you look around and you say, hey, if I'm going to be a part of this organization, I really need to push myself to the next level in these different things that I'm doing. And it motivates guys to stay at the forefront of whatever they're doing. You know, I'm constantly trying to think about parallels for, I guess, a lot of people that listen to this. We have a lot of residents or, or students or people that are in their training or hoping to go on to become surgeons and probably some similar attributes in terms of those that sort of make it and those that don't. What's been the difference in becoming a SEAL and not becoming a SEAL? What you've observed from being a part of selection and things like that? So I would say the big the big difference, especially when you're talking about the initial selection of guys coming into the Navy and screening to get a spot, to get an opportunity to go to SEAL training, what we call BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. The guys that have that opportunity, and, and there are a lot, everybody's pretty familiar with the statistic, it's like 80% attrition for the guys that show up on day one of SEAL training to the guys that make it through is about two in 10. Mental toughness, I think, is the one characteristic that if you can really neck it down to make it through that initial phase of SEAL training, because there's varying degrees of guys are all pretty fit. Some are more fit than others. Some are triathletes. Some are high school or college athletes. Football players buzz around the same time as a guy who was an Olympic swimmer. We had a guy who played college football at Notre Dame and some other things. Everybody has a baseline of athleticism, but really what gets you through the long, cold nights and hell week and some of the tougher mentally challenging evolutions is that resiliency, that mental toughness, that ability to have failures and bounce back, to have difficult moments and come through those and continue putting one foot in front of the other. Ultimately, I think that's what BUDS is designed to do is get guys who have that mindset, that resiliency, that mental toughness and get them into the teams. And from there, you take that sort of unmolded clay, if you will, and you make it into whatever you want to, right? If they have that baseline of athleticism and that mental fortitude, you can do a lot with that guy. So what's kind of like the blend of physical preparedness or fitness and mental toughness? Like for the Olympic swimmer, is it just like slam dunk, this guy's going to have no problem or for the triathlete? Or do you see people that were like the most physically fit that still may not make it? What breaks first, the the physical fitness <laughs> or the or the mental toughness, I guess? Well, so for the Olympic swimmer, the swims were real easy. And, you know, for the triathlete, the runs were real easy. The thing about BUDS is you have all of these different things. You have the log PT and you have the surf passage with the inflatable boats and you have the runs and you have Hell Week, which is five days with essentially like two to maybe three hours of cumulative sleep over a five-day period. And so there's no really, there's no amount of physical training you can do that's going to prepare you to be awake for five days. So that's where the mental toughness comes in. But I will say for the people, if there's anybody listening who's thinking about going through SEAL training, be as fit as you can going <laughs> in and just understand that physical fitness is going to make it a little bit easier for you on the mental side. I saw high-level athletes, guys who were all Americans in high school, football, wrestling, all these different things, and I saw them quit. And then I saw guys who were, I would say, not particularly outstanding athletically. They were good, but they just maybe had that mental edge that they weren't going to quit. And it's really hard to quantify what it is that goes on inside of somebody, 30 guys who are standing at the end of Hell Week, and you say, what is it that makes these guys, and they probably aren't the 30 guys you would have picked out of the 150 that started Hell Week, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. 
So uh, again, just kind of like for some context, we think a lot about organizational design and perfectly designed for the results we're getting. And I suppose special forces are dramatized in things and movies and things. How are they organized? What What is special forces and how is it segmented in terms of eliteness? Well, so there's a number of different components. You know, there's each branch of service has its own, what you would call elite unit. You have the SEALs within the Navy component and you have the Army Rangers and Army Special Forces Army component. You also have like Army Aviation, which has the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment or SOAR, which is the Black Hawk and Little Bird and 47 Chinook helicopter pilots who are the premier helicopter pilots in the world. The Air Force has the 724th Special Tactics Squadron. That's like their elite component, which is combat controllers and pararescue medics. And so it really, we work in conjunction with those other units. I would say what differentiates naval special warfare, there's a number of components within naval special warfare too. You have explosive ordnance disposal, you have the special warfare combatant crewmen, which are like the boat drivers and handle a lot of the bigger weapons and stuff like that. And then you have SEALs and divers too, I guess, are technically part of that. And so you have those components within naval special warfare too. And really what makes us different, what's a set us apart is that we are more inclined towards like the maritime working environment. Over the course of my career, it's really been land-based anyway. So there wasn't a lot of difference. You know, we were vying for the same missions. The Rangers and the Army SF were vying for it because you're all essentially it's landlocked unless you're looking at like the riverine operations that we did in Iraq and some stuff like that and some onesie twosie stuff off the coast of Africa. But it's really like that's the distinguishing feature. But beyond that, it's like we would say we're the premier maritime unit. But that's not that SF doesn't do. They also dive. They also have a, a You guys tend to get the publicity, huh? <laughs> the movies. We do. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. It, <laughs> it, it just happened that a couple high-profile things fell into our lap and were executed well. And I think that speaks to a lot of different things, leadership and dedication and knowing that if you're going to be essentially at the forefront of that, we need to be as elite as we say we are. <laughs> and then, you know, things have worked out for us. Yeah, that's awesome. Another question, you know, in surgery, I think things are, you know, they can get kind of stressful and, you know, at times, yeah. I guess, even life or death, but your job obviously takes that up to a whole nother level. How do you stay calm and think clearly in these really high stressful situations? And maybe as a team, how do you stay calm so that everyone's kind of on the same page? Because in an operating room, it's not just, you know, it's not just the surgeon, it's four or five people that are contributing, again, to a different degree of intensity. But yeah, I think there's probably some lessons there that we could think about how how you how you all execute when you're you know downrange in a in a mission. One of the primary things that you can do to stay calm in any situation is is communicate. Have a, an open line of communication with the people that are around you. And good leadership, I found that even in the tensest battlefield situations, good leaders communicate calmly. So for us, it's all over radios. Doesn't tend to be a lot of yelling and stuff like you might see in the movies. Like a lot of our communications are made via inter-channel radio between the team. And so if you have, you know, you're in a firefight, things get really hectic, maybe an ambush or something like that. And the voice of your team leader, your troop chief comes over on the comms and says, okay, hey, here's what I need. I need alpha team to move to this position. I need bravo team to move to this position. I need these people to go here and calm and collected. And then you have the Air Force combat controller who's on the radio with the overhead air assets. And he's making his calls and he's saying, hey, you know, this is what I need you to do. And that calm, especially for like the newer guys who maybe haven't been exposed to a lot of combat, that calm breeds calm. So if you are hearing that there's leadership, that there's people who are 
directing traffic in that chaos, you're like, okay, now I have a direction. Now I know where we need to be and I'm moving with this maneuver element and we're moving to this position and that's what we're doing next. And that really like can take a very chaotic situation. And I don't want to say it's calm because combat isn't calm, but it organizes it and it puts people in a position where they can be successful. And so I think communication is is paramount. I think secondary to that is having people who have rehearsed that specific action or that specific plan or that specific, I guess, movement, whether it's doing a house clearance or whether it's doing land warfare tactics. You've been through that so many hundreds of times or thousands of times that when those things happen, you're like, okay, now I know what to do. We entered this house. There's a shooter down a hallway. I know I need to find a, a secure position in one of these rooms, clear a room, take a bite, establish. Can we flank around that shooter down the hallway? Are we going to have to take the hallway? How are we going to break this off? And knowing that and having been through that and having iterated that, and then would add on top of that, the clear and concise communication from the leadership, it's a recipe for success. Are there any like tactics you use for preserving breathing, preserving energy, staying calm, or is it more just repetition? We have a lot of experts come through the command, which is awesome. And they'll talk about different things. And one of the things that's become, I think, sort of a maybe within the last probably decade or so that's become a real hot topic is is this like mental performance, peak performance, we call it. And so, you know, you hear a lot about controlling your autonomic nervous system, essentially dialing down that fight or flight response. Here's some things that you can can do to control your heart rate variability and stuff like that. Like box breathing is one of the things that you hear people talk about the box breathing with four second inhale, four second pause, four second exhale, four second pause, reevaluate where you're at. That kind of breathing just automatically dials down your sympathetic nervous system, brings you back down into stasis. And as much as, or I guess as few as a handful of breaths in that box breathing can sort of get you back into a calmer mindset. I will say that in combat, there isn't a whole lot of time for that to happen. Yeah. So sometimes it's nothing more than we entered this building, we're in a gunfight. And I've just cleared my way into a room that's secure off to this side. We're regrouping. Calls are coming out over the radio. And I just take a deep breath. (sighs) Okay, where do I need to go? And that's it. That moment, that momentary pause of like, okay, I have a minute to collect my thoughts. And, you know, we go through a constant process of orienting yourself and reevaluating that we call the OODA loop, O-O-D-A, or it's also called Boyd's loop. So it's a four-step process. It's observe orient, decide, act. And then after you've acted, you circle back to observe. So look at the situation, orient yourself. Where am I? Where do I need to be? Decide where you're going to go. Once that decision's made, you act. And then once you've made that action, then you're like, okay, continue the process. And it happens seamlessly over time. I know it sounds simple, but essentially that's a constant process of reevaluating and putting yourself in the best possible position. Observe, orient, decide, and and, and act, and yeah, act. OODA loop or Boyd's loop. I'm going to borrow that. I love that. That translates to so many different situations. And I think oftentimes people just don't act. Mm-hmm. So they might observe, orient, and never really kind of decide and act. So, And I don't want to knock on civilians or sound like the military guy who's, who's poo-pooing the things that are happening in the civilian world. But you see a lot of people who observe and orient, observe and orient, observe and orient. Sometimes they even decide, but they don't act. Or they observe and then they act. Yeah. They don't orient and decide. They just look and go. Um, so it's like you're really trying not to skip the steps, but observe, orient, decide, act. And then once you've acted, you're right back to observe. This was the action. 
I peeked my head out, looked down the hallway. Guy wasn't there. So I popped one room over, advanced my position down the hallway a little bit. Now I'm in another secured space. What am I going to do here? At constant re-engagement with that loop. I love that idea of along the lines of calmness, preparedness, that the harder we work, the luckier we get, or, you know, maybe train hard and fight easy. Or the last time we spoke, I remember we were at dinner and someone asked you, do you ever get nervous or scared? And you were just like, no. And, and I was like, what do you mean? No. And you're like, no, we're always prepared and we have overwhelming tactical superiority. Like, I remember that term and I was like impressed by that. And then you're like, well, I don't know guess I could get scared, but not really. But I, I was impressed by that, <laughs> that you were like, we know exactly what we're going to do. Every We've thought through every scenario and, and we have overwhelming tactical superiority. So like, what does that look like? How do you become prepared? Like when you're going on a mission and what is overwhelming tactical superiority? Repetition. You know, there's a saying that my father was really fond of. He liked to say, people like to say practice makes perfect, but in reality, perfect practice makes perfect. So it's not just drilling, but it's drilling with precision. So everything you do, you're doing with precision. You're doing it on a timeline. You're doing it over and over. Every time you do an action and training, you come back and you debrief that action with your guys and you go through an after actions and you say, what did we do good? What could we have done better? That constant series of evaluation and always trying to get better. And by the time you make it overseas, not only are you hopefully supremely confident in your physical ability because you've been through this hellacious training and you've gone through what everybody likes to say is the hardest military training in the world, which maybe it is. I like to say it is, but I haven't been through all the other military training. So I don't know. By the time you get there, you've done this so much. And for us, especially in the last 20 years, you know, we were fighting guys who were poorly armed, poorly organized. Most of the time, it's just a hodgepodge of people. There's no uniforms and there isn't any tactics to speak of. So for us going into that environment, I mean, we have the superiority, we have fire superiority, we have tactical superiority. We go in knowing that we have the upper hand because we're better trained, we're better equipped. We have selected this group of guys who is best of the best, selected from the best. And you go in with that mindset all the time. And I think to be successful in combat, to have the courage or just to have the right mindset going into that, you have to have a belief that you're going to be successful. Because if you go into any engagement, I mean, whether it's a street fight or a overseas combat, if you go in thinking, I don't know, I'm not sure, I might lose, you're going to be timid and you're going to fight in a way that you shouldn't or that's going to leave you exposed. But you have to go. Part of the reason you win a lot of engagements is just speed and violence of action. And then, you know, the tactics. Kind of along those same lines and being prepared for every situation. When we were talking last, I was struck by some of the things you were describing it. I thought that only happened on Mission Impossible or something. You said like Halo jumping and getting tangled in a parachute. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm thinking if I'm like falling at 30,000 feet, the last thing I'm thinking about is how to cut myself out of this. But you were talking about how you're on the radio describing to the guy above you, like what he needs to do and stuff. And that sort of amazed me that those types of things actually happen. I mean, obviously I knew they they did, but it just made it more real to think that you're doing those amazing feats and being able to execute and go through the checklist. Like, this is what I need to do. I suppose it's a bit if you're in, you know, an anesthesia emergency, you have mm-hmm. to give this drug and that drug and maybe just a different type of theater that you're in. But talk about that a little bit, because I thought that was impressive. You know, one of the things that stuck with me about all the training that we do is that you don't just train the plan A. You don't just plan a plan like, this is how the skydive is going to go. And it better go like that or we're screwed because we don't, there's not another plan. So what we do is, you know, you brief the jump, here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going to get out. Here's the drop zone where we're going to land. 
And then you go through with your group of jumpers that you're briefing, you go through what you call your immediate action drills or your emergency procedures, we call them. And so it's like, okay, if there's a canopy entanglement, what's the emergency procedure? Okay, it's communicate. Higher jumper has priority. Does he have a good canopy? And you go through these and it's like every jump day. So, you know, by the time you get to a certain point in your career, you've had so many jump days and you've gone through these emergency procedures and everybody stands up and you say, okay, what's the cutaway procedure? Look, grab my cutaway pillow. Look, grab my uh, reserve handle, pull my cutaway pillow, pull my reserve handle. And you've gone through it and you've gone through it and you've gone through it static. And then, so really, you know, the time that I had the cutaway, I was only probably at 150 or 160 jumps in my career at that point, but there was a canopy entanglement. It was first light. So the sun was just coming up. So it was still essentially dark when we jumped. It happened. The guy, higher jumper flew into my canopy, canopy wraps him up. And immediately in my mind, because we've been over it so many times, I'm like, okay, step one, does he have a good canopy? So I'm looking up and trying to see he's wrapped up, but I see above him that his shoe is open and it's good. So I'm like, okay, we're not going to plummet to our death. Step two, communicate with him. Are you okay? Is he awake? Has he got knocked out by the force of impact? Can he see? Is my canopy completely wrapped around him? Is he able to get the canopy off of him? And, you know, then they talk about positive communication. So if you're in a situation like that and you're talking, it's loud up there. There's wind rushing in your face. So use only positive. So like you never want to say don't cut away because he might hear he might hear cut away. So you wish if he cuts away a good canopy, now we're both entangled in a bad canopy and now we are going to plummet toward that. So use positive communication or hand signals. So I'm signaling up to him, hey, are you okay? Are you good? Then he's looking at me and he's entangled and I'm saying, can you get free? Can you get free? And, And we're doing this. And the whole time, and it seems odd now to think about, but the whole time it's like after each communication, I'm looking at my altimeter and I'm saying, okay, how high are we? Okay, we're still at 10,000 feet. Luckily, we hit an opening, so we were still pretty high. So you got a lot of time to work with. And things happen fast because you're coming down at an accelerated rate. The important thing was it's sort of just all of the emergency procedures that we had been over so many times Mm. just kind of took over. And there's not time to be nervous. There's not time if I had just gotten tunnel vision and thought about, I'm going to die. He's going to kick my chute off and I'm going to plummet to my death. All you have time to think about is he needs to get my chute off of him. Then I need to see if my shoe is still flyable. And if it's not, I need to get a good distance away from him. And then I need to cut away my bad shoe and deploy my reserve. And that's like what's in my head. So how do we get to that? So I'm observing. He's got a good canopy. I'm orienting myself. Is he able to get my shoot off? We're making that decision. Hey, try to get my shoot off of you. Because at a lower altitude, you know, if we had been below a thousand feet, the answer there is if he's entangled, he grabs up as much of my shoot as he can and tries to hold it in between his legs or whatever. And then he flies his canopy for both of us. Because at that point, below 2,500 feet, really, there's not time for me to cut away. So there's not time and space for me to cut away and deploy a reserve. And that's another thing that you know is that floor for you or for us is if we got down to like that 3,000 foot threshold, I'm starting to think about him flying his canopy and landing for both of us, which probably looks like him dragging me across the DZ a little bit. Not the greatest landing, but save your life. All of these things go through your head. And thankfully, we had drilled them even by the time, again, I was a, a pretty novice jumper at that point. But even at the time I had 160 jumps or 170 jumps, these things have been drilled into you. So plan A, in case plan A doesn't work, here's your contingencies. So here's contingency A, here's contingency B, here's contingency C. And you know those things and you drill them and you know, not only did I know them, I knew that he knew them. So in a surgery type scenario, right? I imagine that the surgeon knows what's supposed to happen. And he has to know that everybody else around him is also aware of what needs to happen, right? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, the ultimate example of teamwork that you described there kind of takes us to teamwork and hiring, which has become a hot topic, especially since COVID. It's hard to find good team members and in our business and whether it's surgical assistants or nurses or support staff and people that you can really depend on and, and work with. And, uh, you know, you find someone that you love and it, I'd go to battle with this guy or gal and in your line of work, that's like very true. So what makes a great teammate? What do you select for? I mean, because your, your hires are obviously pretty critical. Uh, I mean, do you have any advice in terms of a few things that you've found just to be very predictive of very high performers? Like we talked about a little bit the last time that we talked, there's a handful of characteristics that are key in what we're selecting for when we bring people on. You know, obviously guys that make it through the buds, they have the mental toughness, they have the trainability, they really want to be there. But then as far as what you're looking at down the road is trainability, adaptability, you're looking for a little bit of humility, you're looking for integrity is a big one, and then you're looking for organizational fit. So you want somebody who's trainable, you want somebody who's adaptable in complex dynamic situations. You want somebody who is of utmost integrity. For us, that's super important. I mean, something like, you know, if a guy is assigned to go do an inventory of the weapons, you don't want there to be any question that that guy is going to come back with an inventory that's 100% spotted on. Not a guy that cuts corners, not a guy that's going to falsify the report, not a guy that's like, hey, I want to go out steaming on a Friday night. So instead of doing this inventory to the best of my ability, I'm just going to pencil whip it and turn it in and say, yep, the weapons are there. I looked in there. So integrity is a huge thing for us. And then organizational fit, which I think is maybe the hardest one to quantify, but possibly the most important, right, is when this guy joins the team, is it going to be to a synergistic effect or is this guy despite all the talent he might have, is this guy going to be somebody who is a net negative in our organization? We do our due diligence as far as like doing a pretty thorough 360 degree background check on a guy. We call around to other people that may have worked with him in his previous platoons. We say, hey, what was this guy like? What was he like overseas? What was he like in combat? And then we try to make a determination. Is this the kind of guy that we want to bring into this organization? Is this the kind of guy who's going to be a, a net positive for us? And that organizational fit, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons it's like, it's not just guys who are on the level that you're working with. It's also people you want to work with. And that makes a huge difference. I think it's difficult for people sometimes to look at a situation and be like, yeah, the guy's really talented. It doesn't matter if I get along with them, which some things are workable. But if you show up every day and you just can't get along with this guy, or he just doesn't get along with the office or guy or gal, I should say, they don't get along with the office. They're constantly making problems or they have complaints about pe people have complaints about them and they make it a negative work environment. That has a trickle down detrimental effect in everything else that goes on. So really picking somebody who is a good fit for your organization and I guess sort of knowing that about them tends to be a critical thing for us too. Integrity and fit are huge. Adaptability, trainability, mental toughness, those are all big. Yeah, as you're talking through those, all those, you know, I love the example about doing the checklist. It's probably fine. I've looked at this a thousand times. Well, I'm just yeah. going to check the boxes. But the one time that you don't, you never know. And we've sort of adopted at Paradigm this one firm approach and sort of having like a firm way of doing things. Those things resonated so well with me. We, you know, we sort of think about we put the needs of the patient first. We don't cut corners. We're always available. We say yes to every reasonable request. We continually adapt and improve. And we work as a team and are focused on each other's success. So I think that's what you just described. You know, I guess just kind of getting to the end here, you've obviously had an amazing career. What, uh, you know, kinds of exhilarating experiences and unbelievable portfolio of experiences to, to draw from. What excites you about your future? 
drawing from everything that you've experienced over the past 23 years, what's next for you? The answer is a lot of things. I think there are things that I really look forward to. Let me say in, in retrospect, in hindsight, looking back at the last 23 years, I have had the career that I wanted to have, achieved the positions I wanted to achieve. I got to do the work that I wanted to do, the things that I wanted to see happen during the time that I was in the Navy. Those things happened. And I ha- happened to be fortunately a part of a lot of really exciting things. The thing that I look forward to or things that I look forward to is taking the experiences that I had in the teams and being able to go forward and part some of the lessons that I learned with other people. I think it's great that Paul brought me on to speak to your organization. I had such a good time doing that. And I really felt like people had some good takeaways. People had amazing questions. I felt like we probably could have sat there all afternoon and talked to those folks. And it was those experiences for me are very rewarding in the sense of like, there's much more to this career and to my future than just having gone overseas and served the country. I'm extremely proud of that, of having been able to serve and super, super fortunate to have had longevity of this career. But if I can take some of the things that I learned and share those with people now and really in any aspect, and like we were just talking about, you know, I've had an opportunity to do a team building exercise with the pro pro bull riding team and gotten to do some translation work with some of the Brazilian riders and stuff like that. And that stuff to me is super satisfying too, just to see those things translate across so many different applications. The couple of decades that you've been in the SEALs, it's definitely kind of mission accomplished. I think you can kind of go out on a, on a high note. I guess just any last words of advice of anyone who might be looking to follow in your footsteps or looking to translate you know, your experiences into their careers? You know, it's like the old adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> I really think that that helped me through my careers. There are long days. There were long days in buds and long training weeks. There were long weeks on deployment. There were long, tough stretches that at times you really have to look internally and say, man, do I have what it takes to make it through this train? Do I have what it takes to continue doing this job? And I think you put one foot in front of the other and bite it off in manageable chunks and you take it one day at a time. And I know, particularly on the veteran side, and this is something I'm very conscientious of now, is there are veterans who get out and have a really hard time making the adjustment and having a fulfilling life or feeling like they're valuable in the time after their service. And I think it's that bite it off in manageable chunks understand that there are people who care about you, who are there for you, find your support structure, lean on the people around you. And I think in any organization, those things are critical. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And and more importantly, thank you for everything you do for all of us. And let's do this again next year. Yeah, absolutely. Let's. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health, an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept.